Hi, I'm Rajiv. Hi, I'm Venkat. And this is Dharmology. Namaste, Rajiv. Namaste, Venkat. So, in our previous conversation, we talked about the CAA and how it's similar to the Lattenberg Amendment in the U.S. Um, I think we also talked about various anti-CAA movements and what gave rise to them. Mm -hmm. So although the anti-CAA protests and actions were distressing and painful for many Hindus, in reality, not all that transpired during these protests is bad. And I think in this conversation, we should discuss some specific aspects of the anti-CAA events and explain why some things that transpired are actually positive developments in some sense. Does that um, make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. During the CAA protests in India, um, we saw the participation of foreign organizations, such as those affiliated with or funded with um, the Open Society Foundation. How can we see that as a positive development? Well, so uh, Open Society Initiative is just one of the many organizations that have been operating in India for the last 40, 50 years uh, under various uh, pre tenses or under various garbs. Um, Ford Foundation is one name that comes to my mind instantly. Amnesty International is another organization. And Open Society Foundation happens to be just one of the many in the same um, uh, modus operandi um, that, that got highlighted during uh, anti-CAA protests. So... Uh, the question, though, was that if we looked at what happened in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, especially with organizations like the Ford Foundation, an average Indian, especially a Hindu Indian, had no clue of why these organizations were in India, what were they busy doing, and let alone the fact that if you told them that they are busy proselytizing in India or executing projects to convert Hindus to uh, other faiths, especially Christianity, then they would have had a hard time believing it. Uh, but today, with anti-CAA protests and uh, the complicity of organizations like Amnesty International and also Open Society Initiative, uh, it is coming to forefront that these are the organizations that were operating in the background, organizing against the government of India, inciting violence and protests against, against the government of India. So just this exposition in itself is priceless. I don't know how else uh, the, uh, the negative role that these organizations, these foreign agencies that, that, that are operating in India how else we could have exposed it in such simple terms as we can do now. So you're essentially saying that these organizations were operating more or less 
in a covert manner before or not in, in a non-transparent manner. And now they can no longer do that. And so they're, they're open to criticism. All right. What I'm saying is that these organizations have a dubious agenda, uh, one that is uh, advertised, but the other that they are equally, if not more, busy doing. And Amnesty International is a classic example. Amnesty's uh, publicized agenda is about human rights, uh, but India has seen through the late 80s and the 90s, especially when the Kashmir insurgency was uh, uh, was going up, that Amnesty was making a lot of noise about human rights violations um, in India and, uh, and were not willing to understand what is it about Kashmir that the government has to um, control? What is it about Kashmir that the government of India finds as a security threat? Uh, so every bullet fired came on the radar of Amnesty International without a due diligence on who was it fired on, was that person even Indian or was from across the border from Pakistan, was that person a pre peaceful protester or an armed militant? None of that judicious um, advocacy was being executed in part of on the part of Amnesty International and uh, and their record in India was especially tainted um, but come anti-CA protests uh, they were they are complicit in um, in anti-CA riots and uh, the whole motive is now in the question well if you are a human rights organization your job is to uh, identify human rights um, violations and call them out rather than incite people for violence. Do you see these organizations now being um, subject to some kind of sanctions in, in India or their activities curtailed to some extent as a result of the um, activist role that they played in these anti-CAA riots and activities where, you know, they may not have directly sparked violence, but they definitely act as a, acted as a catalyst for, for uh, violent protests. The rational person in me says that, yes, uh, these organizations will be cracked uh, down upon, their operations will be more closely scrutinized. Um, but at the same time, um, I, I, I see this as not just as, as a cakewalk as it may seem, because especially in case of Open Society Foundation, we're talking about billionaires uh, behind it, a person by name of George Soros. Uh, but more than the scrutiny, what now, it, it, this is now basically, for lack of a better word, an open war. Uh, that the government of India has uh, has the carte blanche to to wage against these special interests, these special anti-India interests. So, on a, on a slightly, um, let's move on. Now we've talked about these um, Western, you know, organizations that are operating in India, such as the uh, such as those funded by the Open Society Foundation. Now let's talk about the radical Islamists that participated in the protests um, and their 
participation resulted in violence and death of an intelligence officer from India's intelligence bureau. The troubling fact, the most troubling fact, is that one of the protagonists in the violent attacks was a member of the Legislative Assembly in New Delhi, the capital of India, and was a member of the ruling party that governs New Delhi. It's called the Am Admi Party. So how should we interpret this event? You know, a, a, a member of Legislative Assembly who has now confessed to being a chief instigator of the um, riots that took place during President Trump's visit to India? Well, there's many ways to interpret that situation or, or what that confession highlights. They all seem to fit one narrative, though. And I would want to focus on the narrative. And that narrative is that the protests, the protesters, the rioters, as I would call them, who were killing people, as you mentioned, including an intelligence bureau officer, killing Hindus, burning and destroying property. If you notice the two or three things that they were saying repeatedly were the slogans such as Jinnah Wali Azadi or slogans such as La ilaha illallah. Now, I want to take those two and dissect them a bit as to what they mean. So when somebody says Jinnah Wali Azadi in India, for those listeners who may not be aware, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who sought the partition of India from British, was asking for a separate nation for Muslims. And his ask was rooted in the belief he held, which was shared by majority of Muslims in 1947 and 1948, was that Hindus and Muslims cannot coexist. The only solution to independence of India lies in a two-state format. For somebody today to be repeating a slogan or rather inciting violence using the slogan Jinnah Wali Azadi, what they are basically saying is that Hindus and Muslims cannot coexist. So for a member of Legislative Assembly, the one that I think you're talking about, to not only support violence, but then support it with a, with a slogan of Jinnah Wali Azadi is basically sedition. And the reason I'm saying that and taking so long to explain it to our listeners is because essentially what it is highlighting is that this anti-CAA movement in India is now being considered as a seditionist movement. Thank you, Rajiv. The um, name of that member of Legislative Assembly, I think his name is Tahir Hussain. And... Um, you know, he, there's uh, all kinds of information coming out about his um, confession, and then he's also uh, provided lots of information about his accomplices. 
and and the motivation for his acts. Correct. Before you go further, though, I want to address the second part or the second slogan, which is uh, which is what I mentioned earlier, which is La ilaha illallah. Um, again, for those listeners who may not be aware of what that means, um, Islam has five pillars, if I may use that term. And those are around uh, making the holy pilgrimage to Mecca, um, giving alms or charity, which is called zakat, praying five times a day, things of that nature. But one of them is known as shahada. And this word, la ilaha illallah, is a shahada, which is uh, in a way considered to be an Islamic testimony. It's an assertion that Muslims make uh, saying that there is no God but Allah. And the reason I want to highlight this slogan or this chant uh, during the anti-CA protests in India is because, again, as in the previous case of Jinnah Ali Azadi, what these protesters are testifying in open is that there is no God but Allah. And the reason that is problematic is, is because they are in a secular democracy, but the intent they are highlighting is that this has to be a Muslim theocracy. This has to be an Islamic state. And that is a fundamental problem with anti-CA protests. So under the garb of asking for equality for all, which is the whole idea of protesting against CAA as per their own um, assertion, what they are suggesting is that the future of India is only a Muslim India or a sedition, a seditionist path, which is India being broken down. So this comes back to breaking India uh, conversation that you were having earlier. So given all this evidence that's coming out now about a coordinated effort, a well-funded effort involving both radical Islamists as well as um, other, you know, organizations that were um, a catalyst for these protests. Um, let's let's move on to how the media covered this event and why the media, and I'm talking here about the Western media, which portrayed the riot as a pogrom against Muslims of India, um, is not coming out and admitting that it was wrong, given that the evidence that has been coming out in the last couple of months is showing that that reporting was credulous. Um, you know, I, I don't know, I, I have not seen anything from any of the media outlets retracting any of their stories or um, putting out a correction. But, um, the, you know, I, I'd like to talk about this with you and what, what your view on that is. Yeah, so um, retraction has two possible downsides to it. One is that it highlights that you were wrong to begin with and are correcting yourself now. That is one possible ex downside. The other possible downside to retraction is, is that uh, if you were intentionally wrong, then it highlights that you had a malintent 
to um, discredit India or discredit uh, the government of India or the culture of India or especially the Hindus. Now, it also highlights a third problem, and the third problem is that in retraction comes and with retraction comes an assumption that our journalists and our reporters are not doing their homework or they are not well versed in history or are being lazy and not doing their job. So I see these three or four reasons as to why we have not seen a retraction. But I have a hunch, given what we are seeing across the world, uh, including the United States, which is that the media definitely is biased. There is a narrative of people being persecuted, which will sell like hotcakes. And uh, it is much easier to sell a story if, if you sell the narrative of a victim and a victimize, victimizer. And that's, what, that's the bandwagon that media has jumped upon. I would be disingenuous if I said that every media person or journalist is not uh, educated in history or uh, is lazy. Uh, I think it's a, it's a combination. What we noticed in the West, especially in the United States, is that the media or the agencies that we thought are not biased, like NPR, in their reporting, uh, in choosing people like Burkhadat, who have a long history of being biased, and uh, unscrupulous and having a wrong intent uh, or a malintent uh, against India and against Hindus, in NPR having chosen her tells me something about NPR, which is that it is just as biased as other mainstream media. But more importantly, it tells us that our taxpayer-funded NPR is actually not doing what it's supposed to do with taxpayer money, which is report objective facts, do objective reporting. It is rather choosing sides, and that is problematic. One thing I would add is that the reason why you don't see the media um, apologizing or, or trying to correct after the fact um, make corrections for the false reporting that they peddled during as the events were occurring is partly due to their arrogance as well. They almost view them, you know, the information that they provide as some sort of a received knowledge, and you know, any um, opposition to that or any dissenting viewpoint, they dismiss immediately and basically label as, you know, a Hindu nationalist viewpoint or some kind of propaganda. It's, it's sad to see that, you know, a large segment of the mainstream media has kind of developed this attitude that the information that they provide to the public is infallible. It's like God's word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's that's what I've come to see. Yeah, the position of preeminence that the media has self-declared itself to be in is a big uh, a roadblock to their accepting their, their shortcomings. Can you talk, you know, let's, let's move on from the media angle to um, some of the activities that took place on university campuses. 
um, there were many anti-CAA protests that took place both, you know, um, on site as well as on social media that were promoted by university students. Can we, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for those listeners who are in India, this may not be anything new or, or newsworthy, but in the United States, uh, this may come across as a bit of a revelation that a lot of the anti-CAA protests in the United States, a significant portion of it, was actually student-led or was held um, at uh, university campuses. Now, the reason that is problematic is, is because what we noticed is uh, that the university students were basically sharing their half-informed, uh, almost propaganda-driven uh, hatred towards India and Hindus on college campuses, uh, not only without knowing the facts, not only caring to understand the history of what CAA is, who is this about, who does it impact, why was it instituted in, in the first place, but also the vile, the, the vitriolic behavior that they were demonstrating in the videos that are floating around on, on social media is just full of that, um, that refusal to accept and listen. Now, this is wrong on many fronts. First is, what does it indicate to us about the open-mindedness or the curiosity or the sense of wonder that a college-going student should have? Well, let's keep that aside. This is, for the moment, this is not the forum for, for us to, to go into that philosophical conversation. But the other aspect of it is, is that these college campus movements are being funded and are being organized uh, into groups like Students Against Hindutva, uh, which, which behind them have uh, basically a movement that used to be the anti-Israel uh, lobby, the anti-Israel machinery, uh, which has totally now um, focused on to college campuses and uh, And, uh, and, and are utilizing and are peddling their narratives through, through students. And that is problematic. In, in a more general sense, thank, thank you for that response. In a more general sense, I think there's a, a serious problem with the humanities um, divisions of various universities in the United States as well as across the world. It is no longer... Um, focused on producing intellectual thought and based on well-reasoned, um, you know, grounds or, or basically <clears throat> it's no longer about producing intellectuals. It has become a, uh, a place for peddling propaganda about a particular worldview. And, and this is readily apparent because there's no room for debate or um, discussion, intellectual debate or discussion. Any opposing viewpoints are immediately shot down as 
you know, being incorrect or um, phobic in some respect or racist. And I think this this is a dangerous um, pre- event or that is transpiring. And our universities, I'm not saying all, you know, elements of the university, but particularly the humanities, um, the way that it's proceeding, people are going to lose faith in what um, these universities are producing. What, what is their goal and what, what kind of people are they churning out um, at the end of the day? I think this this is a, um, a very um, pressing concern, not just in the United States but across the world, because we say this we saw the same kind of events transpiring in um, GNU in, in New Delhi during the NTCAA um, events that mm-hmm. transpired there. Yeah, and we have only thus far, in context of universities, talked of students. Let us not forget that there's also faculty and in, in, in academia uh, that has uh, taken upon itself to uh, get politically involved against India and create a narrative against Hindus and Hinduism. So um, the point I guess I'm trying to make is, is that uh, academia today is being conditioned uh, by, uh, by some agencies to bring credibility to a false narrative uh, of, of Muslim oppression in India, uh, which is much more disturbing because basically that machine of, of thought generation and thought provocation uh, has been hijacked. Right. And, and the, the focus has, um, or, or the um, medium of learning is no longer based on debate and well-reasoned thought. It is now turned into um, a, a medium for peddling um, propaganda. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we've covered quite a few topics, and um, I was wondering, you know, we, we talked a lot about the implications of NTCAA events for Hindus in India, and we, we touched a little bit on the implications for Hindus in the United States, too, but I, I wonder if we can expand a little bit on, on the implications on the U.S. side. What are some of the things that we've seen and... Um, can you can you shed light on that? Sure. Uh, so the way I see it is, um, or the way I bucketize the implications is is um, as to how the political landscape in the United States uh, is changing and has changed. And the other thing is, um, the other thing I want to talk about is the the shift that has has recently come uh, in American Islam. And uh, for, again, those listeners who may not be aware, the anti-CAA resolutions that were passed by many city councils like San Francisco or uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, or or maybe others, um, was many agencies Islamic organizations 
but one or two names that come to my mind are CARE. Now, there's a few folks in the Middle East Forum, and if you uh, listen to what they have to say, what they are asserting with a lot of evidence behind it to back it up is that CARE is a, a frontage to uh, what used to be the presence of Muslim Brotherhood in, in the United States. Now, that is disturbing on many, many fronts, which is that uh, why would uh, an organization like CARE, which has such a dubious um, uh, background, um, is getting to influence uh, our, 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 our city governments and council members uh, the way they are? So that is one aspect. The other aspect is, is the sham show, if you, if you remember that uh, the U.S. Congress put uh, with, with Ilhan Omar taking one of the seats when they invited Aarti Tiku Singh to talk about Kashmir. And uh, the problem there is that was just a put-up show of, uh, uh, of, 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 of a hearing when basically the whole uh, panel was biased and uh, clearly Lahan Omar did not want to hear anything about or, or facts or the realities of Kashmir. So um, that shift of the United States politics uh, towards, uh, towards Islamists or Islamism is quite disturbing. But what is even more disturbing is, is that with the involvement of these groups such as CARE and perhaps many more behind it, um, the, the face of American Islam is changing quite a bit from the peaceful uh, and moderate that it is today or has been in the past to perhaps being more radicalized along the lines of what has happened, let's say, in the United Kingdom. And uh, I want to highlight this to the listeners that with anti-CAA, um, this is this this has become quite visible. The other thing I wanted to highlight is is the ease with which some of these resolutions were passed, the density with which the media uh, reported about anti-CAA protests, uh, the confidence with which they uh, falsified the narrative, but also why that was not called out uh, by the politicians in, in the United States. And what that highlights to me um, is how uninformed um, and how much limited understanding of South Asia our, our U.S. Uh, policymakers have. And let's assume for a second that they do not have the limited understanding. They rather understand uh, everything um, but then that raises a question in my head as to what were the political compulsions of our politicians uh, so, ha so as to, ha to succumb uh, under the pressure from, from, uh, from the Islamists, especially in the Democratic Party and especially the progressives of the Democratic Party. So the very party that is supposed to be a party of all minorities, uh, which is the Democratic Party, as it used to be, today is now a party with its progressive arm uh, of just some minorities. And uh, I don't know who all those minorities are. Uh, Muslims definitely are. But 
at the same time hindus definitely are not and and that is clearly becoming uh, very uh, abundantly clear out of these anti ca protests to me the other aspect that i think we should be focusing upon is the efficiency with which the city councils especially the one in san francisco passed an anti india or anti caa resolution while at the same time there are problems of in their own backyard problems of homelessness and problems of um high rent and problems of public defecation that they have taken years and years and still have not been able to do anything what does this tell us about the intent what does this tell us about how fit these politicians are to lead us where do they find time to focus on a matter of uh of uh, of of another country and its internal affairs when uh, when they they in the past have not been able to find time or a way towards a solution to the problems in their own backyard uh, our politicians and our policy makers are very inadequately prepared to handle matters of uh matters that are complex in nature and uh, in one sense it it kind of is uh, is a relief to me because now i kind of understand well how did we enter into a mess in afghanistan how did we enter into the mess we had in iraq uh, and this is the reason we have people who back then did not understand the differences even between let's say the shias and sunnis and today we have uh, politicians who do not understand uh, what is the history of india uh, what is the uh, uh, genocides of hindus in south asia what are the ethnic cleansings going on uh, in that part of the world uh, what is the human rights situation in uh, countries such as or the islamic republics neighboring india such as bangladesh or or, or pakistan you, you summed it well it's it's a combination of ignorance and to some extent self interest so some some politicians actually know what they're doing is not ethically sound but it's politically expedient so they're they're doing that so i think it's a combination of both but as you said it it the hindus are hindu americans are in a tough spot because they traditionally voted heavily for the democratic party and it's clear that none of the candidates of the democratic party are willing to um pay any attention to them um and and they're focused on building their progressive credentials and doing so means you know not being working against the interests of hindu americans and promoting hindu phobia this is a um uh, a very scary fact in my viewpoint mm-hmm Absolutely. Okay, I I think we've covered, you know, quite a lot of topics. If someone were to listen to this in combination with the prior discussion that we had on the CAA, they can, you know, understand what the CAA was and then view it in context of what implications of all these NTCA events are and and kind of get a full picture of the overall issue. 
I hope so. Rajiv, we've talked about many different aspects of the anti-CAA protests and riots. I was just wondering if you have any concluding remarks. Well, in conclusion, all I would say is that, as is the case in most crises, uh, there is an opportunity here. Uh, the opportunity is for us to get consolidated as Hindus. The opportunity for us is to call out these uh, uh, misrepresentation, mischaracterization, distortion of facts on behalf of media and politicians. Uh, the opportunity in front of us is to bring our politicians uh, back to what we elected them to do. But more importantly, this is also an opportunity for us to start a bigger dialogue of uh, the uh, social and uh, systemic injustices that the minorities are um, facing in the Islamic republics neighboring India, like Pakistan and and Bangladesh in particular, but also Afghanistan. So, um, as I said, uh, there is, uh, there is, yes, there, there, there seems to be doom and gloom, but there's a silver lining to it, and the opportunity in front of us is to, um, to, to grab it and reorient ourselves towards a more, towards a more positive outcome. Excellent. Look forward to having another fruitful discussion with you in the near future. Likewise. Namaste. Namaste.